wonderful children that we are blessed with in this congregation. Just a reminder, this should look familiar to you. Back in March, we spent some time kind of going over this, and we went through a procedure of handing in the tear-off tabs or the bulletin inserts, and on there were the number of people that we are committing ourselves to pray for. Ah, thank you very much. We are uh, willing to pray for throughout this year that, uh, that they might be touched by God in a special way that would lead them into relationship with Him. And so just a reminder, I'll hold this up from time to time, are you praying for those people that you said, yes, I want to pray that Jesus, somebody will find an inroad to share the good news of Jesus with them, these people that I'm concerned about, family, friends, others. Well, what was the theme last week of our sermon? What was the theme? Oh dear, <clears throat> I'm so glad that this gripped your soul in such a powerfully dynamic way. Well, if you recall, it was authority. Jesus speaking and healing with authority that's totally dumbfounded, astounded, amazed the people that were around him. <clears throat> and so I want to review for a moment where we've been so far in the last few weeks Still in chapter 1, we're actually still in the same day, apparently, of Jesus' ministry, kind of his first day of uh, spreading good news. And we saw that Christ was baptized by John the Baptist and blessed by God the Father. And in verse 11, blessed is my son in whom I love and I am well pleased. And then we saw the first disciples responding to Jesus' teaching. And at once they left their nets and followed him in verses 18 and 20. And then we saw Jesus teaching people. And they responded with amazement to his teaching. They were totally astounded by it in verse 22. He taught as one having authority. And we concluded that he in fact is authority. Then we saw Jesus exercise a demon in verse 27. And it says there that even, uh, he even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. They obey the word of Christ. And we left off last week with verse 28. Immediately, the news spread throughout the region. Not bad for a day's ministry, and it makes me feel just a little inadequate sometimes representing my Lord Jesus Christ as your pastor. But immediately that news began to spread. The tentacles of good news invading people's lives and changing lives along the way. And in verse 29, Mark, his favorite word, immediately they left the synagogue and they went to Peter and Andrew's house. It is approximately 20 to, uh, I mean, 30 to 40 yards from the synagogue to where they think that Peter's house actually was, so not a very long distance at all. And let me just remind you what a synagogue is. A synagogue, uh, well, the Jews had the temple, the tabernacle, then the temple, and so on, and that's where God resided until his resurrection or crucifixion when that veil of the temple released God, and by his Holy Spirit, he now makes his residence in us who believe in him. And the synagogue was a place of teaching, a place where the Jewish people would go to hear rabbis and teachers and uh, uh, people of the law and scribes. Uh, they would share about the message of the scriptures, and they would debate it and go over it and mull it 
uh, as they were contemplating God's word to them. And today we'll see that Jesus Christ's power and authority is present once again as he ministers to the people. Let's pray and invite God to be a part of our consideration. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we ask, we invite, we pray, we beseech that you would speak to our hearts, that we would encounter you. Help us to be more like you in how we live our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. You have an outline in your bulletin and the front side there where it says the True Discipleship Series. That's the side to kind of guide you through the sermon this morning. And so looking at the story here of our text and uh, the first point of being at Peter's house, the disciples go to Peter's home, presumably to get a bite to eat, it seems. And uh, we don't know exactly what time that happened and so on, but it appears it's happening uh, as sundown is approaching and uh, evening is setting in. And Peter tells Jesus that his mother-in-law isn't feeling very good, and so therefore she won't be helping out and so on. She's got a fever. And I want you to note that they never asked for anything. They didn't feel, maybe didn't even know Christ well enough to know that he might be open to healing a fever uh, in, in somebody in these circumstances. And so they didn't ask anything of Jesus at all. It's almost an apology, kind of because hospitality was such an important thing to the Jewish people of the day, kind of apologizing for the fact that the hostess of the home would not be available because she's not feeling up to it. Mom's sick. Uh, We're kind of on our own for dinner, is basically what they were saying. And then in verse 31, Jesus goes to her. He helps her, extends his hand, and lifts her up. And then she is healed. The fever breaks. It's gone. She's feeling perky, spunky, ready to, uh, to serve and to be a hostess with them. And it's almost as if she comes out to the kitchen and says, hey, out of here, you guys. Uh, I'll pop some Hot Pockets in the microwave and we'll be all set to have lunch in a few minutes. Hang on. There's no account of Jesus saying any words. Jesus doesn't speak there that we know of. Also, there's no prayer. You would think, well, if there's going to be a healing, there should probably be a prayer and ask for God's power. And uh, also, there is no kind of incantation or mantra or some sort of uh, word spoken over her for this healing. Just the touch of the Master's hand, and she is healed, freed of this fever. I have to wonder if Peter and Andrew and James and John are thinking that they uh, made a pretty good career choice at this moment of laying everything aside and following him. And you can imagine, with the news of him spreading like a California wildfire throughout the region, that they could now add healing to an already growing list of credentials and impressive uh, list of things that he is able and capable to do. And so what happens? Nice quiet evening, kind of relaxing by the fire in Peter's place? No way. Sunset has come, and the crowds now begin to gather at the door with the sick relatives, the demon-possessed friends, and in the typical Mark fashion of his gospel, to emphasize how overwhelming the news of Jesus Christ was. In verse 33, it says, the whole town turned out and came to Peter's door to witness Jesus' power. 
Now, I want you to trust me for a minute. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you just to imagine. Try to put yourself inside Peter's home, or maybe amongst the crowd milling outside the doorway of Peter's home. Imagine the sights. All those people milling and and kind of jostling as they come close to try to hear and to see glimpses of this one called Jesus. The smells that might have been going on as the hot pockets are drifting off and and the the smells of a fire in the home and the experience of people that they experienced that night. Can you sense it? Okay, you can open your eyes. And I want to give you a pop quiz. Why did they wait until after sunset to come and to gather? I heard somebody say it. Sabbath, yeah. If you recall back in verse uh, 21, it talked about the fact that Sabbath was imminent. And Sabbath goes from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday. And so the Sabbath had been fulfilled during which no burden bearing on the Sabbath and no healing on the Sabbath and many of the sick and the broken needed help. And imagine waiting for the sun to set bearing their precious cargo of loved ones and friends to the Lord Jesus to see what he might do to heal them. Anticipating what Jesus Christ might do as it says that Jesus healed many. And in the Greek, that's the word polos, that he healed many. Why didn't he heal all? The word there in the Greek would have been holos pas, if he had healed all of the people, but he healed many. We don't know. Mark doesn't say. It just simply says that many were healed. Maybe it was those that were willing to put their faith in the healer. We don't know. It's conjecture. In verse 35, there's a moment with God, a very early uh, morning, still dark and so on, because in that day, sunrise was the time when you would rise to start your work of the day. And the people would begin working at sunup. Jesus beats the commute, goes to a solitary place, literally a desert place, or also translated a quiet place. And what did he do there? He prayed. He communed. He fellowshiped. He uh, communicated with his heavenly Father. Spends time with God. And if Jesus Christ felt that it was important, who am I? as a mere mortal, as a human being, who am I to say that, boy, that would be pretty important for me too? And I wonder what Jesus prayed about, don't you? I wonder what that prayer sounded like. What was the conversation like between he and his heavenly Father? But maybe more importantly, what is our conversation, yours and mine? What are our conversations like when we pray to God? And so, Does it end with the chirping of birds and the gorgeous pinks of the sunrise in the sky and off the hills? Verse 36. I know he's got to be around here somewhere. Jesus, where are you? He couldn't have gone very far. What's he think he's doing, sneaking out in the middle of the night like this, getting us all worried and bothered? Andrew, John, cover over that side. Look for him. James, come with me. We'll do this side. And so the squeeze begins, number two on your outline there. The squeeze of life, and I can imagine Jesus hearing them clumping around, saying to God, God, to be continued, we'll pick this up later. 
And then to the disciples, they're there, not to worry. I'm just fine. I've been out here praying. And in verse 37, they exclaim, and it sounds like exasperation with him. Everybody's looking for you. There are people to be healed, things to be done. We need to be busy. There's board meetings and council meetings. and Oh, we've got our up the wazoo, all sorts of things that we've got to be doing. Squeeze, squeeze, squeezing sometimes the very life out of our relationship with our God. And in verse 38, Jesus basically says, now don't get your knickers in a knot. That's why I came. I came to preach good news. We're going to teach good news. Let's go. The squeeze begins. The squeeze on Jesus' time. The squeeze on his prayer life as he wants to be in fellowship with his heavenly Father desires that very much. The squeeze on his ministry and having to conform to what people's expectations are. The whole squeeze to conform and to be more like the religious establishment. The squeeze to uh, cave to earthly pressures, to earthly demands. Demands of this world, this life, this culture. And this squeeze would not end until the end of Jesus' life on earth. The cries of needy people, the press of the crowds, the homeless people, the people with disease, the urgency of needs, the indignation of people when their needs aren't met in the way they expected or wanted them to be, and the setups and the tests of the religious establishment to see if they could corner him and get him off his stride. The man's from all side. Think a moment. Do you ever feel that way in your life? I know from what you've shared with me that some of you do. That life is closing in all around and there's so much and you just think you're going to go bananas? You feel the squeeze? The demands of life? You feel the pressures? Do you feel the urgencies? Society trying to dictate what our schedule should look like. Still trying to tell us what we should do and when we should do it and how we should do it. And so we come to Roman numeral number three. We must take the example of Jesus Christ and we need to resist the squeeze of our culture, of our world, of all the voices around us. We must insist on living a balanced life. A life of family and work and rest and recreation and uh, worship and prayer and God's Word, that there must be a balance. And if not, we proceed through life at our own peril. ABC News did a special documentary several months back on the rise of coronaries and how it's rising dramatically in the ages of 30 to 40, which... 25 years ago, 40 years ago, didn't happen nearly as often. And it's happening in both men and women. It used to be the men got heart attacks. Part of it was we didn't do enough study and research in women's health to know that they were actually having heart attacks too. They just had different symptoms. But I think part of it also is entering the workplace and entering the hubbub of life that life has no longer got the natural rhythms that God intended and built in. And they said in the documentary that the increase in coronaries is happening because of the increase in stress and burnout and anxiety and depression 
and digestive troubles and relationship brokenness and that all those clump together for the biggest causes of coronaries. And what is it about our culture, our lifestyle, that squeezes us? Why does the U.S. lead the world in coronary deaths? There's a saying that money can't buy you happiness. And it's interesting to me that it's one of the wealthiest nations ever to be known in the world. Yet, there's so much pain. There's so much brokenness. There's so much unhappiness. Because we have not learned the resource to resist the squeeze. And so I want to look at three uh, pressures that our text addresses and that we fall victim to today. The first one is the pressure to depend on yourself. That's the American way, after all. Out for number one, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and on and on the slogans go. The pressure to depend on yourself. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, with fame spreading faster than Aunt Matilda's gossip, people at the door clamoring to have their needs met, and all of this going on, and what does Jesus do before he has another day? At the crack of dawn, at the start of day, he is with God. He is with God. Jesus knew he could not fulfill his mandate on his own strength, that he needed time for God to prepare him, to strengthen him for what was ahead, for what that day would bring, and to open him to God's power. Prayer is the honest admission that we cannot live our life on our own strength, that we cannot do it ourselves. We need God's strength and power. It's the admission that we desperately need God. Not to pray, well. Not to be in God's Word, well. Not to be involved in some quiet time where we just take and rest in our Lord to be still and know God. Well, that's an arrogant, arrogant declaration that I can do this on my own. I don't need anyone's help. And if Jesus knew that he needed God, who are we to think that we don't need God? Can you or I afford not to be in relationship with our God? That leads me to the second pressure, the pressure to meet people's needs. Jesus must have been drained I sure am at the end of a long day. I have days that don't even approach what Christ faced, and yet I'm pretty drained. I'm so thankful for Mike Hurd. I'm so thankful for our council and our leaders, for Rick Watson and the Pastoral Relations Committee, for our ministry staff and ministry committees, for our deacons, for our missions committee, And on and on the list goes. Those individuals and groups who come alongside me and help me bear the load of ministry in this church and in this community and in our world. The ministry of our church and its future. I recall being at a beach with the grandkids and we're building sandcastles. You know, that's always a must thing on a beach. And there's always the obligatory moat around the castle that you dig And very often you reach water or else an obliging wave comes to fill your moat but also to destroy your castle. And so you scoop deep 
and take out the sand and the water and you try to stay ahead of the filling hole, all to no avail. The odds are too big and the needs of our world are great and they overwhelm us. They fill our moat to overflowing and destroy the castle of our dreams. And it just keeps coming like the water in our beach sand castle. But we must pace ourselves as Christ did. We must keep Sabbaths daily, weekly, monthly, annually to have Sabbath times individually, in our marriages, in our other relationships, in our parenting. Some of us need to quit acting like we are God's only resource to do all the work, all the ministry. And of course, that means some of the rest of us that have been kind of maybe resting too much need to exercise the gift that God has given us so that we can each bear the load together and it not be hard on anyone and that we would trust God for his resources and strength. And that leads me to the third pressure, that we need to resist the squeeze, the pressure to betray your own priorities. In verse uh, 37, it says, everyone is looking for you. They are needing Christ. They are wanting Christ. They want His attention. They demand your time and life and all of its craziness. Jesus refused to let the demands on His time squeeze out the priority of His commission with His heavenly Father. How do we do at that? I've got this little book here called A Day Timer. I know that there's electronic devices now, but I seem to do better with paper still. This is a tool. This is a tool. The days when I don't allow it to just be a tool in my hands, with my Heavenly Father's hand over my hand, then I live under its tyranny. Because it wants to organize my life. And that's not a bad thing. But sometimes it over-organizes, and sometimes it organizes out the Lord, thinking that I can somehow do it myself and fulfill the daytimer's demands. Calendars are the devil if they tyrannize our lives. Did you catch Jesus' response to the exclamation of verse 37? Let me read verse 38. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. That's it. That's the gig. That's what we are here to do. That's what the disciples are going to learn. That's how they are going to follow. They're going to follow because Jesus knows what he has to do. And it's very interesting to me in verse 38, he doesn't go back to that doorway full of people and all those people that wanted healing and whatnot. He left the crowd waiting. Why? Not because healing wasn't a good thing. Not because demon exorcism isn't a good thing. But Jesus knew that if he allowed himself to go with the easy crowd, he'd abandon the priority to which he was called by his heavenly Father. His call to proclaim good news. And in verse 15, we read that he proclaimed, the kingdom of God is near. And it's that nearness that expedites and makes urgent this call of God to share good news with others that need to hear and be in relationship with Him. And he says in verse 38, that is why I was sent, why I have come. 
It would be so easy if all the choices and decisions in life were black and white, yes and no, good and bad, clear. But that's not life. There's a whole smorgasbord, a whole buffet, a whole potluck of things spread before us, choices and opportunities. And most are good. The temptation is to take a little bit of everything onto our plates and to overwhelm ourselves. Anybody in the Daniel plan says, if you have a problem, just shrink your plate. Half that stuff will fall off. God's call is to discern God's best, God's priorities, and to pursue them. And if your kids don't get enough of your time, your priorities are all messed up. And if your marriage isn't getting quality time, your priorities are all screwed up. God, sometimes desperately wrong, how's your time with God? Are you abiding in Him? Are you being still and knowing Him, truly knowing Him? So my challenge to you is the point to ponder down at the bottom of your outline there. Where is the world culture putting the squeeze on you? And will you give God a chance to be victorious in that area of your life? And a second challenge is on the other side of that outline. And there will be some of these available in the back throughout this uh, next few weeks of the Mark series. In which I challenge you each Sunday to kind of let the text marinate in your life. Tenderize you. Sweeten you. Spice your life up a little bit. Just allow God's Word to minister to you. And then note, what are some of the character qualities of being a disciple? We've been talking about these different paths and the idea that we are walking in the disciples' sandals with our Lord and understanding how it is that He wants to minister. And so what are the character qualities of being a disciple? And then secondly, during the week, I want my discipleship to express itself in the following actions. Things that God will lay on your heart of how you should organize your priorities. And then thirdly, I will seek to develop a discipleship accountability relationship with to find somebody that you can be accountable to that will hold you accountable to live more and more in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the people that you minister to through your Son, as we're reading in Mark's Gospel, and to see their reactions and to learn from that of how you want us to be in your life. God, we thank you and ask your Spirit to help us as we contemplate how we might fulfill your call. We pray this in your name. Amen.